For April 28th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 304. Nickelback lyrics about Japanese schoolgirls. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, uh, and we got the band back together, guys. It's it's Matt, Mark, and Pete all together Woo-hoo! again. You know, I, I can't remember the last time when we had the three of us together, just because our schedules have been a little crazy with traveling and stuff like that. I suppose uh, if I were to look at the internet, I could find that out. Um, when the last time that we were all together was, but, uh, uh, when just the three of us, you know, just the three of us, the podcast stalwarts were podcasting together. I don't know. Uh, but it's nice to have you gentlemen. Um, and, uh, and I also want to say, kawaii. Kawaii! Inasaki Aragato! <laughs> Throw a cupcake at me, guys! <laughs> really? I'm going back through the 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 lists and it's it's been a while since uh since the three of huh. us were all since the three of us were all together. I mean just our special friendship, our special three way friendship, right? And not uh you know, uh not any of the writers who we love who we love to have. Um Anyway, so wow, this is a this is a, I'm I'm lifting up a special glass of Trader Joe's box wine in uh, in celebration of of this moment. Um, cheers. cheers to you! Did you like that I tweeted you a picture of my bourbon the other day, Mark? I did. I appreciated that. Thanks, bro. I tried to find. Oh, no problem, bro. Uh, so. Um, Listen, we're going to talk about Avril Lavigne in in a minute or two. He <laughs> <laughs> seems and, so world weary at the prospect of doing this. No, can you can you sense the resignation in my voice as I say, "Okay, guys, we're going to do it." There's no. It's like the only way to eat a pop cultural elephant is one bite at a time. <laughs> it sounds like you're marrying Chad Kroger, Matt. Things aren't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Avril Lavigne joke, but we should we should put that off and talk about something else first, right? Hashtag Hello Kitty. Um, yep. So uh, yes, uh, we're going to talk about something else. So um, th- there, uh, you may have seen around the internet this story about uh, games being excavated in an Atari landfill uh, out in the desert, the the um, in in the deserts of New Mexico, and uh, the ET game. Being uh, recovered, M- many cartridges, I guess, of the ET game uh, being recovered from this um, famed Atari landfill. So, in honor of that question, panel, your question tonight is: What uh, piece of pop culture would you like to excavate? Something that you feel like has been buried, as if in a New Mexican desert landfill. <laughs> In a oh, in a New Mexican desert landfill of obscurity or of forgetfulness, um, what uh, buried pop culture would you like to uh, to see excavated by you know a lot of guys with backhoes and like uh, tool belts and and international orange safety vests uh, over their over their flannel shirts. Um, 
I'm just uh, I'm just describing the pictures I see in this article. Oh, also like respirators and masks. Apparently the landfill uh, apparently the landfill might have some sort of like respiratory hazards uh, in it. So you know everyone make sure to wear your your PPE, your personal protective equipment. Uh, I want eyes and ears in all time, all times overthinkers eyes and ears in, and uh, you might want to use a mask or a respirator if you are. Um, if you are uh, sensitive to this sort of thing. So don your steel-toed boots and tell me what piece of pop culture you are digging in the landfill to recover. First in the alphabet, drink, because it's Peter Fenzel. Hey, Matt. So I want to take a quick moment to say... I, I, am I the only per ask? Am I the only person on the podcast who has actually played the ET Atari game that is the subject of this question? I believe you are. Yeah. Okay, because I actually played it back on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. And for those of you unfamiliar with this story, it's pretty legendary in video game circles. The American video game boom that happened in the in the early nineties, and then the bust where it was widely believed that the video game industry was going to disappear without a trace, uh, which is a really unfathomable thing now to think about that there was this point where people were like well the video game fad is over i guess that thing happened uh but it's largely the crash is largely attributed and perhaps misattributed but attributed to the atari company paying 22 million dollars in licensing to make a video game off of the highest grossing of all time at the time movie et the extraterrestrial and it is the worst game the worst – I mean you can – you have to get really academic. You have to reach for like – I mean everybody – there's this one game that's incredibly terrible called Custer's Revenge that's often cited as the worst game ever. It's terribly racist. It's horrible about violence against women. But it's like a deliberate horribleness. It's like I am trying to make an object that is morally and physically repugnant to anybody who encounters it. Whereas E.T. was like trying to be a video game and it is the worst experience that I've ever had uh, controlling the, the controls of any sort oh, of – I'm glad that sentence went on because I thought you were going to stop after worst experience I've ever had. Oh, no, 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 no. I've had much worse than that. Are you kidding? Are you, then, even, then, the, even the worst video game is a lot better than the best knee injury. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but uh, not that I've had a great many knee injuries. Ankle injuries we could talk about. But, um, but, but the, the main problem that I encountered when I was like you know seven playing the E.T. video game or whatever, I was six years old, was that um, E.T. would constantly fall into holes. And, and when E.T. fell into a hole, uh, there'd just be a screen that was like sort of a misshapen sort of pit. And E.T. would have to use his levitation powers to rise up out of the hole, which E.T., of course, has limited levitation powers. Uh, he would be like a level one ranger mage or something in D&T or whatever. I don't know what... Uh, he doesn't get to memorize a very advanced spell is what I'm saying. And it, it happens... His little neck moves and he goes up like very very slowly and you have to sort of navigate him up out of the pit so that he doesn't like lose his levitation power and fall back into the pit and this is like when you sidestep off the trail of what you're supposed to be walking on in pursuit of whatever the heck it is you're trying to accomplish uh which i had no idea what it was those atari games were terrible in terms of explaining that to you but anyway he kept falling in the freaking pits, and it was just a game of like holding buttons, pushing buttons, matching buttons, moving the joystick to try to get E.T. back onto the track of the actual game that you were supposed to be playing. So this game was so bad, it sold so poorly that there was excess inventory, of course, and Atari went and disposed of it by burying it in the desert, in a landfill. Uh, I think when people say they buried it in concrete in the desert, uh, there's a mythologizing that takes place. Perhaps they were in the desert anyway. Perhaps it was just the cheapest place to throw the things out. But yes, they buried a whole bunch of cartridges of this video game 
in the desert, and uh, a bunch of filmmakers making documentary have dug them up recently, and that is why we were talking about this. Now, if we were to talk about what would I want to have someone dig up, uh, I <laughs> there is a very specific machine that I would like them to dig up. I would like them to find a Bell 222 twin-engine light helicopter, a specific one, a specific helicopter which crashed in a thunderstorm on June 6th of 1992, killing the passengers aboard the helicopter, uh, a German helicopter company that was using it to charter, or a German charter company that was using it to, uh, to charter um, uh, ambulance, ambulance passengers back and forth. This helicopter, which you would never have guessed from looking at it, uh, from its, its retasking, from its ignominious end, uh, ending the lives most certainly of innocent people, was actually, in a former life, Airwolf. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Airwolf, gentlemen, but Airwolf was the highest-tech helicopter ever created by the United <laughs> States military. Actually, it wasn't created by the United States military. It was created by a crazed military scientist working independently who <laughs> believed that he could use Airwolf to shift the balance of power. But then J. Michael Vincent became the, the pilot of... Okay. So Airwolf was a TV show. It's like Knight Rider with a helicopter. Well, not really. The helicopter couldn't talk. But it was basically about a high-tech helicopter that could fly really fast with rockets and, uh, and, and conduct various Cold War or late latter Cold War, 80s Cold War era missions against vaguely defined like Libyan or, or, uh, or Soviet targets. And uh, the show is just really intense. I've talked about it sometimes on the podcast before. It, it doesn't, it's not really very campy, uh, at least not in its intention, as much as can be guessed. Uh, Jan Michael Vincent is a bizarre sort of star uh, to look back at his career and sort of him playing cello and watching the Eagles when they're assigning him with helicopter missions. But the idea that the actual Airwolf helicopter, which was, you know, I mean, it's just... It's a it's a it's a whimsical object. It's like the Batmobile, but not as fun. Uh, and the idea that it was it was like scrapped. It was like it was you know it was taken apart. The fake rockets were taken off of it, and it was just sold to a charter company that used it as an ambulance. And it crashed and it killed people. Um, I just I feel like somebody just with a metal detector should just find Airwolf. And she'll just be like, you know, and then the little song should start playing from like a tape deck that's like, yeah, wasn't there some cool synth riff underneath that too? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's great. It's a great. As far as '80s synth television show themes go, it's like top fifteen. Yeah, it's like right up there. Would you say the Airwolf and its prominent use of the helicopter is like? Uh, America's way of trying to uh, reclaim the memory uh, or reclaim the helicopter after the tragedy and the trauma of the Vietnam War? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Okay. I Uh, thought so. I'm not very familiar with Airwolf, but what I remember of it is uh, is that, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's also... I mean, I'm trying to think. There was another television show about a helicopter that ran at the same time as Airwolf. And uh, was it the show Riptide, where they were actually Vietnam veterans? Um, I, I don't know. There's like Airwolf wasn't the only helicopter television show on TV at the time that was trying to reclaim helicopters from the Vietnam War. Uh, yes. Huh. So, oh, it was a thing. That's good to hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this was also the this was also the era of Rambo, right? This was like oh, yeah, I, yeah, I associate. Yeah, yeah. Airwolf, I mean, okay, so when you're at the elementary school table in the 80s, and some of you had this experience and some of you didn't, there were, like, different sort of subsets of cultures that people would experience. And there was the kid who really liked sharks, 
right? Because sharks were a big thing, and he and he was very nice, but he was kind of creepy, and you know he loved Jaws, and he watched all the Jaws movies, and you kind of wondered why his parents let him watch Jaws because it was very scary and rated R and probably not good for children. Um, and in retrospect, you worry a little bit more about the kid than you even did at the time. And then there's like the people who like the sort of action stuff that you could watch, like He Man, or like you know we talked about the Ninja Turtles a couple weeks ago. That's a little farther on. But then there were the people who watched the stuff that was like the action stuff for older kids. And for older, for teenagers and for adults, like the Rambos, you know, and, and like the, all the, all the, with the machine guns and, and just, and I mean, I guess the A-team was kind of the gateway drug to those kinds of things because it was kind of kid-friendly because no one actually ever got hit by the bullets. But, um, but, but Airwolf definitely belonged in my mind at the time to like the things that were violent and kind of militaristic that like only, that like children weren't supposed to watch. It wasn't like a kid-friendly show. It was very sexual too. Um, so in that sense, it was it was more around the area of like of of Rambo than around the area of Knight Rider, which was much more kind of family friendly fare. Um, you know, yes, there was you know the the just totally mind bogglingly, unwaveringly potent sexuality of David Hasselhoff and Mr. Feeney, but uh, other than that, <laughs> it was the kind of show that a kid could watch. Whereas Airwolf is pretty alienating for the experience of a child. In that sense, I associate things that were alienating for children with the eighties in the eighties with like the Vietnam War. For some reason, it's like, it seems like a cultural wound that's being served by a lot of these like sort of post juvenile entertainments that like the children who had not lived through Vietnam couldn't understand. Um, that's my take, anyway. That's my take on Airwolf. And on Ernest Borgnine is in it, too, which is awesome, because he's great. <laughs> um, is it, should, should we say Academy Award winner Ernest Borgnine? Uh, yeah, should we say uh, co- co-star of Convoy Ernest Borgnine? <laughs> <laughs> as, uh, right, um, as Dirty Lyle. Indeed. Uh, all right, Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. All right, so I presume that in many landfills across America, there are a variety of old computers Right, and their equipment, associated equipment. I'm specifically referring to like 386 computers with the big old tube monitor and the three and a half inch floppy drive. Right, I want to excavate excavate some of those, and as well as a, a three and a half inch floppy drive copies of the game Wolfenstein 3D, um, and play it in that, or at least like have give people the opportunity to play that. And let me give you the reason why is that, you know, these days, you know, video games have obviously you know, elevated to a, a very sophisticated level with the Xboxes and the Playstations and whatnot. We've come a long way since E.T., right? Um, but my video game heyday was back in the day, you know, it was back in the 286, 386 days where you would actually play games off the off of a floppy drive because the hard drives had like two megs of space or like 20, 20 megs of space. And that was a lot. Um but I have, I have a very specific memory of sticking a floppy drive into an old computer, waiting a long time for Wolfenstein to load, um, and, 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 a, and a couple other sensory things, which I think are lost you know, uh, without the very specific hardware of the time there. I'm, I'm referring to the smell of the plastic. I know that sounds really strange. Maybe there was something wrong with my computer. But I remember the smell of the plastic, and I distinctly remember the sound of the floppy drive reading the data off the disk it was it was a very loud humming thing it felt you felt the sort of power oozing from it you felt like something really mystical and was that was at play and that the thing that was being accomplished was hard and difficult and required a lot of physical machinery 
to make happen. And it did. I mean, if you think about it, right, you know, a floppy disk is uh, this, this thing you, you, you in, insert it into a drive and there's this, there's these, you know, physical components. There's a spring loaded kind of thing going on and there's this magnetic. Oh, right. Yeah. There's this, right. There's this chunk. There's this satisfying chunk. Uh, as the plastic seats into its place and, and the, the yes. arm does. And then, the, by the way, the metal guard over the, the uh, spinning uh, medium on yeah. the thing yeah. slides out right. of the way. It, like, it, is, wow. Matt, it, is, it is not dissimilar from a heavy metal door in a Nazi prison slowly <laughs> opening. Or it is not dissimilar from a magazine of bullets being inserted into a German submachine gun. Right. Right. I think there's like this vis- very visceral uh, experience with old video game hardware, uh, be it the 386 computer or an Atari or an old Nintendo or anything uh, along those lines. That is uh, that is lost, and you don't quite get the same experience when you load up Wolfenstein in your DOSBox emulator or play it on your iPhone, right? Some- something is missing there, um, and yeah, I'd like to I'd like to dig that out of a landfill. And, 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 and have someone be able to experience that. I think one of the interesting things about what you're bringing up is I feel like there was a shift in the center of gravity of that, all that at some point. Because you got to think that the tactile experience of inserting a video game cartridge is something that people thought about. It's not just something that happened arbitrarily. And I felt like the patterns of clicks and the resistance of you know in, in putting a disc in. When does it click back? When does it click out? How does the spring work? What it, you know, it, it makes me think of soda cans. And, and when you open a soda can, it always has to hiss in a specific way, and it always has to crack and make the same noise. And no doubt, there's teams of engineers figuring out exactly how to make the soda cans make the crack noise that you want them to make. Right? It's like it's part of the experience that's desirable to have these objects create this physical feedback because you. Part of why you use the thing is because of your habit of using the thing, and if you change the physical characteristics of using the thing, then you know it doesn't satisfy your need to conduct the habit, and thus you don't want to use the product anymore. Uh, and so it's it even it's like even if can technology improves to the point where you don't need there to be a loud crack and a hissing sound, um, when you open a can that doesn't quite work that way, it feels weird. Right, and I wonder at what point, with the loading of removable media from computers, they decided that it didn't have to make noise anymore. Because we still use removable media, like we still use flash drives, right? And like you can plug a flash drive into a computer, but it doesn't make a clicking noise, really, right? And you mean we we use like you know Bluetooth adapters for our cars and our phones, and and I mean there's all sorts of stuff you can use, you know, speakers and whatnot. But there, other than the like little bitty click you get when you plug in an audio clip, how come there's no tactical feedback to plugging in a USB port? Right is is my question. I'm wondering: is that a missed opportunity? Could the USB people have included some sort of tactical feedback, and would that have made people more enthusiastic about using that particular technology? I, I got I got I got an idea, Pete. Okay, I'm sitting on a gold mine here. Right, we create a USB that is in the shape of a, a 12 gauge pump action shotgun. Right, <laughs> which you stick into the, the USB drive, and at that moment you hear this chuck chuck. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I have to. Well, actually, Pete, uh, just not to be a jerk about you mispronouncing something, um, but but for the comedic opportunity it provides. You're talking about tactile feedback and not tactical feedback. Tactical feedback oh, yes, would yes. be if you plugged in the USB drive and it said, "Copy that." 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it were like, if it started going, and like a big helicopter came up over your house and started shooting missiles. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you had to dive <laughs> under tile, the desk. Tile's what I meant. You had to you had to dive under the desk because that's a great defense against missiles shot by a helicopter. <laughs> I'm sure it happened in Airwolf many times. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like on tablet computers, you know, no, uh, not even the clicking of the keys anymore, right? But mm-hmm. it seems to be a, a oh, trick. Except that they do, right? Artificially. Well, there when is you, a sound, the yeah. On, on, the, on the iPad. It makes I guess so. I mean, do you, I, I never have my phone's sound on. I never hear all those things. There might be a whole world of like little audio responses to things that, that you know, well designed apps and whatnot have that I'm completely missing out on because I just keep the thing on silent all the time. It's constantly whispering your name and telling you how much it loves you. <laughs> it's, it's whispering into your ear, Matt. Hail Hydra. <laughs> I, I missed i missed the captain america podcast so going back to uh our, our lament that the, uh, the 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 crew has not been together for uh for a lot of podcasts recently i lament boring, the fact yeah. that i was not together with the captain america podcast I'm still because boring. it was great you guys you guys you guys Elytra. 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 i'm uh i'm still pouring through the uh the listings i can't i can't uh find the last one yeah yeah <laughs> I um so I I want to answer this and my answer is the uh, uh uh is a television sitcom. It's the uh 1991 television sitcom Rock. Uh that starred Ooh. that starred Charles S Dutton that I think has been completely completely forgotten. Um at least by the sort of mainstream audience that was supposed to uh, that was supposed to be uh, into it because it was broadcast on Fox right when they were when there was The Simpsons and they were making their play as like being the fourth network. So this this thing, I mean, it was was edgy, but like it uh, it um, it was meant to speak to a mass audience and and just didn't. It was uh, you know it had. I guess good numbers among uh, African American viewers, but had something like I, oh, Wikipedia has the ratings an eight point nine five rating in season one, which ironically, like they would kill for today, but um, but I guess wasn't very good back in in nineteen ninety one before the internet's. Here's why I miss Rock, and Rock, by the way, was a was a sitcom that starred Charles S. Dutton, like noted uh, stage actor Charles S. Dutton, as a garbage collector um, who lived in Baltimore. And uh, he had, you know, f- crazy family troubles, and he was a garbage collector, which was an endless source of amusement on the show because he was always finding things out, uh, doing his job as a garbage collector, and uh, bringing them home. Like they got the couch, you know, off the side of the off the curb in front of somebody's house, and they got the TV off the curb in front of somebody's house. And his wife was understandably always complaining about this sort of thing, and and you know, hilarity and. Um, but, uh, but over the course of its three years, it got gradually more, um, uh, more, uh, sort of social commentary, uh, and, and not social commentary in the way that like, uh, Breaking Bad was social commentary about like what the disappearance of the middle class or, um, 
you know, I don't know about the American like dream. The racial capitalism of shaving your head. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, or you know, um, the integration, uh, the integration of Latino people into American culture, right? Or, or any of the number of things that it was. Those. This was about like um, this was about social issues in the way that an instruction manual is about the product you're using. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and the 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 episode that I remember very well and I was 12 years old it was the uh the um presidential election 1992 presidential election uh Bill Clinton was elected but he was running against incumbent George Herbert Walker Bush and Ross Perot um was uh uh was the uh, third party candidate right and um they spent a whole episode early in the season of what must have been the uh the third season no, second season, uh, second season of Rock. They spent a whole episode with Rock just like sitting there on the couch. And, uh, of course, each of the other three regulars in the sitcom was supporting a different candidate. And Rock was like, well, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. Give me your best arguments for your candidate. And the whole thing was like a, a presidential debate by proxy. And it was a glorious, middle-brow social commentary with jokes. Right. And I feel like that's missing. I don't know. Or maybe I just don't tune into those kinds of things anymore because I don't have, you know, cable or over the air television or things. And everything I watch comes from Netflix or the waffles. And it's, um, uh, you know, so I live in a I live in a political echo chamber of my own design. Uh, right. As we all do to a certain extent these days. And uh and so, like, a lot of stuff, a lot of mainstream stuff about social issues and middle-brow political commentary. Oh, and I don't, uh, I don't watch any cable news. It just – it really messes with my mood. It really makes me very angry, no matter what the political bent of it is. So I miss uh, – so, like um, kind of straight down the line, social commentary, socially relevant uh, half hour sitcoms. I mean, MASH is another one, right? That you could uh, um, that you could bring up. Though I think I think MASH was always more concerned with being funny than Rock was, especially in its later years when it was, when it got pretty got pretty grim at times, you know. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, that's mine. Rock. Um, did, did either of you watch that show back in the no, day? Totally off my radar. And, and let me just say that the, the thing that's most surprising me about your description of the show is that in one episode of this television series, um, it was plausible for an African-American individual to, to be supporting a Republican candidate for president right, of the yeah. United States. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I can't, I don't like the, the numbers for the last, uh, to uh, presidential elections of what, like 90% of the African-American vote went to the Democrat. I mean, sure, right? The Democrat happened to be Barack Obama, who was also a black man. Um, but uh, there, you know, put that aside for a moment. And it is um, uh, indicative of the amount of like r- racial polarization and the, the increasing whiteification of the Republican Party since, uh, since those days. Hmm. Yeah, I watched the Jeffersons and Amen and 227 and What's Happening and Different World and some of the Cosby Show, but not really a lot of it. And I never watched Rock, so I missed out, I missed out on that. Though I remember the advertisements for its live seasons, 
for Rock Live because they were all stage actors, so they could all perform the episode live in front of the cameras without dropping huh. their lines and stuff. Right? Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's really. I mean, like seriously, Charles S. Dutton, like like heavy hitting. Yeah. Uh, heavy hitting. You may know him actor. as the as the janitor from Rudy, who gives <laughs> the five foot nothing, a hundred nothing speech, right? Like, uh, which is featured in the 50, uh, forty inspirational speeches video, briefly. Oh but, uh, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> and what what is the line that that Belinky cut into? And I guarantee a day will not go by, right? Like that line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, from uh, from African American culture to Japanese culture, God, could there be a more ham fisted? Um... <laughs> well, no, no. The, the before before Speaking we go of there, rock, Chad Kroger did a new song. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I know there's a few other things I wanted to talk about in this topic of like excavating buried pop culture, or, or more, maybe more specifically, uh, this idea that there's some cultural artifacts that are so embarrassing to the creator that they literally have to literally or metaphorically have to bury it right in the case of et bury in the desert or in the case of something like uh disney's song of the south right metaphorically bury it in the sense that like they uh they cut off its means of legitimate uh distribution right so that uh you know this famous uh partly animated partly live uh disney movie which has a very uncomfortable uh racial uh, racial issues around, like you know, former uh, a former slave was a sharecropper, that sort of thing. Um, like Disney has uh, tried to uh, bury this uh, to the extent that something can be buried uh, these days, uh, and it also applies to something like the Star Wars Christmas special, right? It was George Lucas tried to bury or uh, Kiss's Phantom of the Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park? Anybody remember this one? I remember reading about it on like Sean Baby back in like 1997 or something. Right. And so there's this whole list of these types of things out there, and and my my, uh, my sense of it, and this this does flow into the next thing, is that um, that uh, well, a like nothing can really be buried now, right? Because of the internet, right? And you can uh, even a YouTube video is taken down, uh, taken down. It was already you know downloaded and then posted to a bunch of other places and like reposts to YouTube and that sort of thing. Uh, so that, you know, it's impossible to do in our digital reproduce, reproductive, uh, infinitely copyable age. And two is that it, it um, it, it's just, I, I don't like the, the, the implication for the discourse that, um, you know, because something out got out there and was problematic, it was embarrassing, just take it down and try to bury it and make it go away. Right. Like everybody kind of loses in, in, in that sense, because, um, you're not able to sort of just like have it out there and, and 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 let everybody consume it and make their own judgment for themselves and talk about it. Um, so like that is to segue to our next topic, right? Like, you know, this he- crazy Hello Kitty video, uh, problematic though it is, I would not want for it to be buried. And even if it were possible, I would not want it to be buried. It's great that it's on YouTube, that people can watch it and talk about it and discuss why it's problematic or if it is problematic at all. So. Here we are, guys. Avril Lavigne. Hello Kitty. <laughs> so have we explained what this thing is yet that we keep referencing? Well, I mean, I'm sure people have Googled it by now. But uh, Avril Lavigne released a, uh, a, a song and a music video. And it's, the music video is on YouTube. And it has almost 8 million views at the time that we're recording this podcast. Um, and it has uh, of those eight million views, it has one hundred nineteen thousand thumbs up votes and fifty three thousand thumbs down votes. 
Um, wow, it's still carrying it by like two thirds. Yeah, it's got a super majority of people who are in on board. Who pretty who, impressive? Who like who agree that Hello Kitty is so pretty? <laughs> um, and so I don't know how would you how would you describe how would you describe this video? I mean, I think we've come a long way since Skater Boy is one thing I would say. Yeah, although Avril Lavigne herself is very well preserved. <laughs> She's uh, she her general look is is sort of similar to the hey hey you you I don't like your girlfriend era. I suspect in certain ways. No, it's just that she it's her doing a very uh, very like I, it makes me think of the the. The, the girls, the sketch from Portlandia of the two Asian girls in the coffee shop. Do you guys know the sketch I'm talking oh, yeah, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, they're oh, tiny cool. cups yeah. of coffee. Oh, tinier cups of coffee. This, like, candy-colored infantilist, uh, J-pop, K-pop, uh, any other initial consonants pop that's found in the uh, Pacific Rim, so to speak. <laughs> uh, it's just uh, not not the gypsy danger kind, but the stranger danger kind that we're talking about. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's it's just like it just indulges in just it, it it is like begging for the approval of people who like these things. You know, at one point she uses the little plasticky Polaroid camera thing and like laughs really insipidly at the picture before she shows it to all her friends, and uh, and she's. You know, there's a sake drinking scene, and it's just like, oh, this is so great, ha ha ha. You know, yeah, that's she goes thing. to a sushi restaurant, and it's all shot in very fast speed, and she's like doing that little giddy little uh, clapping of the hands thing, which um, you know, I don't know is is very familiar to me as someone who uh, is a participant and an observer of Asian culture. Um, but uh, yeah, so that 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 scene exists. Yeah, 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 but it's just it's just every bubblegum Japanese stereotype that we can think of. And Avril Lavigne is trying to just get on, get all up on this stuff with a song with a weird dubstep thing going on in the back. And she's got an undercut, like the Skrillex haircut. Um, the line, someone throw a cupcake at me is involved. It's just, it's, 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 it's a lot. It's a lot. I don't really think the song is, is good. Like even a little bit, it's, it's a pretty bad song. It's catchy. <laughs> But like it's uh, it's a pretty bad song. But the main 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 reaction people are having that's causing headlines. I mean, sure, the main reaction people are having, I'm sure, is like, "Ha ha, that's funny," and then they move on with their lives. But the main reaction, <laughs> <is causing headlines. laughs> not us like, though, not us, because <laughs> we're in the entertainment sphere and thus must make mountains out of molehills. We must take the tiniest, tiniest candy-colored molehill and turn it into a giant racist mountain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's about appro- people talk about appropriation. They talk about stereotyping, and then they talk about all these uh, identity political sins that Avril Lavigne and Chad Kroger, her husband who co-wrote the song, committed in endeavoring upon this artistic project. Uh, and that is the big and that is the big fuss. And I heard that that they were trying to take the video down, but maybe they didn't, and I don't know. And they're kind of ashamed of it, but maybe not. Avril Lavigne defended it on Twitter, um, saying interestingly that it was despite its horrible sins of identity political nature it was directed by a japanese director with a japanese cast and japanese choreographer in japan uh which i suppose does take some of the edge off of sort of the elvis idea that she's like stealing japanese culture to try to sell it to a white audience she's more trying to sell a 29 year old white woman as a teenage girl to a japanese audience (laughs) um i don't know i mean um matt as our resident asian expert Matt Rather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm ranting. I'm very excited about this song. I don't know. You guys have exciting feelings about talking. Just talking about it. It's such a train wreck. It's great. It's like a NASCAR crash. 
I want to. Where to start, Matt? You go. Let's I'm, re- I'm I mean, let me read these just some lyrics because, like, though it's clear. I mean, when you hear like, uh, "Hello, kitty, kitty, you're so pretty, pretty," uh, you know. Um, or the hook, which is like kawaii. Uh, the um, the lyrics of the verse kind of get lost in the general WTF of uh, you know of the multi-sensory barrage uh, that's engulfing you when you're watching this thing. So I'd like to just offer a um, I'd like to offer a more uh, measured, just reading of the lyrics here. So this is the first verse, and we'll we'll link these lyrics in the show notes. Mom's not home tonight, so we can roll around, have a pillow fight, like a major rager. OMFG. Let's all slumber party, like a fat kid on a pack of Smarties. Someone chuck a cupcake at me. It's time for spin the bottle. Not going to talk about it tomorrow. Keep it just between you and me. Let's play truth or dare now. We can roll around in our underwear how every silly kitty should be. Right? Um... It's, it's bad poetry. Yes, I mean, well, Matt, rather you are. No, no, no. Who, I mean, it's not poetry. the fact that it's you, bad. You, you. <laughs> the fact that it's bad poetry is not uh, is not what's at issue here, right? Like that. That's no, no clearly not because like most pop songs are bad poetry. Yeah, that 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 is a true statement, but not germane to the point that that I want to make. What I want to make the point I want to make is that there's this major disjunction between this. Uh, you know, between this kind of suggestive or, um, I don't know, P, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not body, but, but sort of, um, flirtatious, like sexual, yeah, sexual, but sexually yeah. flirtatious and sexually yeah. kind of, um, uh, not aggressive, but, but provocative. There it is. Yeah. Uh, lyric and the, the, the sort of aggressively, um, uh, aggressively infantilized sort of uh, almost almost sexless which is sort of sexualized of course for being sexless uh, presentation of this uh, of this kind of Japanese schoolgirl stereotype with the you know giggling with the two hands in front of her mouth uh, and and be, just being kind of vapid the way she is in in the thing right like there are no the, o- the only man in the video that stood out for me through my watching it was a sushi chef uh, you know, so it's not like there's no, um, let's all, uh, slumber party. Um, it's time for spin the bottle. Let's play truth, truth or dare, right? This is not, uh, it, it's, it's like, it is a sexuality. It's a, it's a very immature sexuality. It's a like junior high school level of like truth or dare spin the bottle, um, kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, she, she does, she is sort of like, uh, done up like a twelve year old in the video um, but uh there there's almost no there's almost no sexiness to the video right well it uh, depends on your defini- definition of sexiness there's no there's no, no, no you're right yeah, yeah, yeah uh well sure yeah there's no like um, there's no visual indication that this is sexually provocative i mean yeah i mean i guess if you like um 
you know, I don't know. I guess if you like a bunch of of Jap- bewigged Japanese automatons in you know full length long sleeve outfits, uh, <laughs> right with with extremely high necklines, you you uh, you might like this. I mean, it um, worked for Robert Palmer, but it's not working for Avril Lavigne so much. Um, although, well, that's interesting to think about it because that's that's the the sort of line of women behind the singer who are sort of serving as objects. Recall. Paul's like for me, um, Robert Palmer. I must say Arnold Palmer, and I had to stop myself because he's not. He has nothing to do with this. <laughs> Arnold Palmer has nothing to do with this conversation. But Robert Palmer and like Simply Irresistible and those women in the background, they were very sexual, even though they didn't really do anything. But it's it's a different. Pre- they also didn't look like actively displeased. They looked sort of like faux displeased with what was happening, whereas the ones in this one look kind of displeased. Yeah, there's nothing really. Well, because it's like it's a seduction song, though, right? Like, in, if you just look at the lyrics. Right, it's like but uh, I'm, look- it's I'm like, looking um, now at simply irresistible, and at least there are some like low necklines in this video. You know, you yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying, yeah. right? Like yep. these these uh, these disaffected models are, you know, I don't know. At least, I mean, at least, really cynically there for eye candy, right? Like the the I think one of the things that it's I, I think one of the things that is um, one of the arguments for the cultural exploitation is that there's so little sexual exploitation, yeah. <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in the video. And, you know, someone's being exploited. For God's sake, well, it's an Avril Lavigne video. So, I mean, when looking at the lyrics and trying to find the, 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 the sexual, the, the sort of the seduction going on there, I mean, it, it, it's there, but it's not there. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Come on, come, come, kitty, kitty. You're so pretty, pretty. Don't go, kitty, kitty. Stay with me. And Hello Kitty, Hello Kitty, you're so pretty. Right? I mean, like, anybody with a working knowledge of Hello Kitty, um, you know, the, 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 the Japanese pop culture property um, that is the, the cat, the faceless cat, um, uh, understands that that's not really um, anything approaching a, a, a sexualized territory, right? And, like, Avril Lavigne trying to seduce Hello Kitty makes zero zero sense i mean like negative sense i mean it, it is just off the sense scale altogether right which which is just it's just contributing to my difficulty in trying to provide any um any substantive commentary to this it is, it, it is the whole thing is just like is just a jumble of bizarreness for the most part and i'll get to some I mean, other things in a second but i just want to yeah toss it over to you guys um i mean i have a take on it and it's a weird take but it kind of starts from reading it. It has to do with the quality of the metrics and the use of vowels in the lyrics of this song. Uh-huh. Right? Um, so let, let me, let's sort of think about the lyrics from a different sort of interpretation. Mom is not home tonight, so we can roll around, have a pillow fight. You know, <laughs> let's all slumber party like a fat kid on a pack of smarties. These are Nickelback <laughs> lyrics. Like, like, like these, are, these are Chad Kroger writing Nickelback oh lyrics about Japanese schoolgirls. Oh and like Chad Kroger is a co-writer on the song. And it really – part of what makes it weird is that I really feel like the scansion and the metrics are, are really very Nickelbacky, And that's also one of the reasons why it inspires the bile in your throat to rise when you're listening to it. But – um, but when you're also thinking about 
come, come, kitty, kitty, you're so pretty, pretty, don't go stay with me, right? The singer, whoever the singer is, is trying to get this Japanese schoolgirl to stick around and have sex with him, presumably, or her. I slip and say him because it's like the th- whether or not the video – part of what makes this thing confused is that it's being presented from the perspective of somebody who is into kawaii culture, cute, adorable, you know, this all this – there's this whole vocabulary of kawaii culture, right, of like little pink rabbits and the Hell Kitty and the little tutus and all this other nonsense is all part of this like cultural phantasmagoria or whatever you want to call it. And – the speaker of the song at first seems to be sort of like wanting to participate in this culture and also a participant in this culture who is like doing this thing with other people, right, who are also in the same, thing, same place as they are. But the chorus of the song is about an outsider who is painting the, the person, the, the kawaii person as the other and is saying that this person is, is a seduction song in the, line, in, the, in the angle of like old sort of like, you know, renaissance erotic ballads or whatever you want to call it where it's like oh come on you know you're you're the most beautiful in the world and and would you please i'm a miserable person and why don't you stay with me and all this stuff and and then if you look at it from that perspective and it's like let's all have a slumber party let's all play spin the bottle like i can't get out of my head the notion the the image of like chad kroger surrounded by japanese schoolgirls like singing this song to them right because it's it right those if you think of like the goth lolitas right in their you know i don't know frill uh, their frilly Victorian blouses, right, with their parasols and whatnot, um, in, in in that sort of uh, that that particular thing in Kauai culture, right? Like they're not they're not saying, you know, hey, let's play spin the bottle, right? They're saying, <laughs> <laughs> but but also just, I mean, uh, just the, Nickelback uses so much assonance. Like Chad Groger's songwriting uses so much assonance because he loves to stretch out those those lines, right? Like, hero can save us. I'm not going to stand here and wait. You know, the A is, like, very prominent. You know, there's, like, uh, um, the, the, I'm looking at, like, far away. I'm looking at photograph. They all have these, like, a lot of internal assonance that doesn't add any metrical complexity to the lines. And it's, I just, I just, I just feel like it's so clearly written by the same person who wrote those other songs that are about totally different things, like that this is a silly picture that we have or that <laughs> I don't even know whatever else they're writing about. But, you yeah, know, it is, it is weird. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, it, thinking about it that way where it's like – because Avril – this is the first song they've co-written together, I believe, right, as husband and wife, um, <laughs> which is like a pretty bizarre thing to do. It's like, hey, now that we've, we're settled down, you know, let's, let's, go, let's go write a, a song for a bunch of Japanese schoolgirls together because that's sort of where we are with our lives. Um, I mean, it says something about uh, about exports, right? It says something about um, like one of the things that I always used to talk about back uh, back when I used to write more about globalization um, in my work, and I don't do that anymore, so I don't have to I don't have to talk about I don't have to censor myself as much talking about it. Is the difference between when you're looking to endeavor upon a commercial enterprise in a foreign country, right? Uh, the difference between exporting something to that foreign country, like producing something where you are and exporting it to that foreign country and going, and going over to that foreign country and setting up a business within the foreign country that employs people that work and live in the foreign country, uh, a foreign affiliate model, right? Which then sort of repatriates profits back to the parent company back in your home country, right? And that these are like, and that the latter model is much more successful and much more the story of globalization, which is why none of the 
one of the reasons why none of the trade deficit numbers make any sense is that a lot of the actual trade that is happening is happening in the form of foreign direct investment of people setting up businesses in other countries, and a lot of the flow of, of capital is happening you know, within the businesses as opposed to sort of from a business located in one country to a market located in another country. Can you give an example of that, Pete, just real quick to, to, to crystallize that idea, like Apple Computer, for example? Oh, um, I mean, Apple Computer, I don't, I don't think Apple Computers, I, I'll use KFC as a good example. Sure. Okay. Right? So KFC is very popular in Asia, like yes. very popular yes, in oh, Asia. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the most successful, uh, most successful American uh, fast food restaurant chains in Asia. Uh, and it's grown very well. And part of why it's been successful is it has not tried to export to Asia the experience of going to a KFC in the United States. You are not going to get the same menu items at a KFC in Asia as you get in the United States. It's going to be extremely different, uh, right? It's going to, in fact, so much so that you could go to a KFC in Asia feels like a totally different sort of restaurant, uh, right? And it's it's um, it's it's going to have you know like spicier foods, meats that we would be unfamiliar with or not happy to eat, you know like maybe even seafood dishes. I'm not sure, right? Uh, I mean that's that's a good example. Yeah, the, the uh, kernel is still there, you know. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to gloss over that fact. Yeah, yeah, no, no, the no, food the is different. Is still yeah. there. the kernel is still there, but the company, the KFC, doesn't even mean chicken anymore. It just means C, right? They got rid of the they got rid of the underlying meaning of the acronym. I'm trying to think of another example. Of like an imprint that gets set up, or like when Marvel, right? When like Marvel set up the Indian Spider-Man, that made news, right? Like it's another example of like a cultural. That's more of an export. It's just the same sort of struggle to try to get on board with the the local market. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of. I'm honestly, I'm, I'm blanking on like a specific example, uh, just because you know I have to like Google a bunch of like brands and companies. Um, Gosh, what like different toothpaste brands in Latin America? Like they're like it's very hard for a toothpaste brand to break into Mexico because there's like a huge market share that I think Colgate has, and they haven't been able to like overcome it because Colgate understands the local marketplace in a way that everybody else doesn't. Um, it's stuff like that where it's like sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. what. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I didn't mean to make you belabor the point, but um, oh, no, no, I'm yeah, sorry. I of the, well, concrete gosh, examples. Then why'd yeah. you invite me, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my thing. I points are there, and I belabor them. I'm I'm sorry, Mark. So all, all you're, what you're saying is that this Avril Lavigne Hello Kitty song is not that in action. It is something else, right? Well, no, it's trying to be. That's the thing is that like because she hired a Japanese director and she hired a Japanese choreographer, and it's for a Japanese record label. So this is this is a Japanese song that happens to have Avril Lavigne in it. Is, is sort of the strategy. That's the strategy. That's the attempt, right? It, it happens to have Chad Kroger and Avril, Avril Lavigne like, writing this song and has Avril Lavigne in it, but it's a Japanese song for a Japanese audience. And, and that might be one of the reasons why it was overlooked, that it's so ridiculously offensive to American audiences that are very sensitive about you know, appropriation and racial stereotyping. Right, right. Like, so, uh, so let me, let me give a, a, a my, my take of what's happening here in, in light of the sort of KFC example that you're talking about, right? Yeah. What, what's going on here is that Avril Lavigne experienced Japanese culture, um, you, you know, as an outsider looking in, um, thought that she internalized it and then brought, tried to bring it back over to Japan, right? Uh, or, or not sort of as an exporter, though, but sort of like trying to embed within that. Yeah, uh, and, and do it And do it for the local market there. And, and, and that's a different thing going on rather than saying, like, you know, I'm just Avril Lavigne, um, you know, doing my uh, taking my skater boy thing and um, and, and adapting it to a, a Japanese market. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 because uh, I mean, 
It's it's a different thing, right? Well, here, here's here's a, a set of examples, right? So an an example of like so think about like the pitbull model, right? So Pitbull, he makes a song like, you know, he'll make a song and he, he's Mr. Worldwide, right? So Pitbull is very invested in the global markets. And he makes songs where he, like, mentions everybody in the world. I'm Crazy is one of my favorite Pitbull songs. It's a little old at this point, but I like that song a lot because uh, it, it includes this thing I like to think of and refer to as the litany of the peoples of the earth, you know, where he, he, mentions, he mentions everybody in the world in a specific order. And it starts with, uh, with like, sort of country, with, with major cities, and then it proceeds to like countries and continents and then it goes to like uh specific countries in latin america and and then finally to like specific caribbean islands right like and and so it's like it sort of like progresses through a sort of ascending order of importance that sort of confounds notions of size and scale right and it shows sort of where pitbull's allegiances are but pitbull is 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 a kind of like a multinational cultural icon who's trying to appeal to a lot of different audiences at once he makes a song in one place and then he does he goes to shows to shows everywhere right and he goes from place to place and he tries to do these things um and you compare that, I mean, the one who comes to mind is like Andrew W.K. Uh, Andrew W.K. <laughs> had an album that came out only in Japan that didn't even come out in the United States. Huh. Because Andrew W.K. was popular enough in Japan and not popular enough in the United States to make like a third album, right? Because uh, he has I Get Wet and he has The Wolf and there's like another album that I believe only came out in Japan. Uh, and and th- this is something that happens kind of frequently. Um, and Bill Murray from Lost in Translation is one of the ways that we sort of understand this culturally, but it's not always so sad. But it's like, okay, well, the Japanese market likes me, so I'm going to like go to Japan, right? Or I'm going to do a bunch of shows there, and I'm going to make a mar- an album that is just for them, right? And it's not necessarily like really specifically trying to name check them. That's part of what makes this song feel like it's failing at what we're describing it as trying to do is that it's sort of begging to be Japanese a little bit too much. Or at least the video is. Right? Like like because mm-hmm. if it is a Japanese song with a Japanese director and a Japan then they already know this Japanese. You don't have to tell them. Right? You don't have to tell the Japanese people living in Japan that the song that they're listening to is a Japanese song. They should assume that that's the case by default. Right? And it's like I- introducing a foreign song should be strange. So it's it's that it's so desperate to to claim this culture. It it, it doesn't come across as something that is produced in market for that market. Right? Um, maybe that's sort of the description I'm trying to trying to come up with. Mm. Um, I, what, what do you think about appropriation in general or like accusations of appropriation? What, what is being charged really when someone, when someone accuses someone of, of appropriating uh, another thing, right? Like I, I actually, I don't know. I find I want to, I, and I, I suppose not if it causes suffering or if it is politically bad or people are going to write me angry letters on the internet about it. But um, barring all of that, I kind of want to rehabilitate appropriation, right? Like as one of the modes of uh, one of the modes that that moves culture forward, right, and sort of moves moves the arts forward, right. And I'm thinking of like, I don't know, I'm thinking of of uh, English writers picking up this like exotic Italian uh, sonnet form, right, yeah. and and sort of doing their their back when right back when Italy was exotic and right and and. Uh, you know, I don't know. It it like it it seems it seems like there ought to be sort of commerce um, uh, commerce in ideas and commerce in in um 
in forms among cultures unless you can i mean unless it's economically exploitative or let me yeah, put it in a, i think that's that's just to, to pick up piggyback on that the, the idea of ex- economic exploitation right that say that um uh the common charge that white americans and white englishmen appropriated black r&b and blues music to create rock and roll right nobody's going to say that like um that act of appropriation itself well some people might say that act of appropriation itself is inappropriate but a few people are going to argue that the products of that appropriation are somehow like you know bad just because of the appropriation right the charge that is commonly leveled um you know against these level these acts of appropriation is that the Elvis and uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were the ones that got rich and famous, whereas the uh, the black guy, the black man, the black blues singer, the random black blues singer who sort of in, more indigenously created it originally failed to profit from it. Right, just yeah. white record uh, producers, white um, white capital owners, mm-hmm. uh, they get rich from this, and the black man does not. Yeah, I never really thought that was fair to Elvis. I don't think that this way of talking is fair. I think it's been You're right. I yeah, think, it's totally reductive, right? And I'm not advocating that school of thought. Right, at all. Because not that well, no, 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 no. I'm, I don't mean. I didn't mean to impugn. I think that that's a legitimate concern that people have, and I understand why they're upset. I think that, like specifically, Elvis Presley gets a really raw deal from that way of thinking because he grew up dirt poor and had nothing, right? Like, and, and he and that was just his what he encountered. You know, that was just the culture that he absorbed. I mean, it, Elvis is not was not like a you know, a cynical boy band creation. I mean, for the Colonel, perhaps, I suppose, maybe the Colonel again pops up. But, like, for himself, right? I, I just feel like, I, I <laughs> feel uncomfortable. It's Colonels all the way down. It's Colonels all the way down, yes, exactly. There's a Colonel at the center of this whole thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's pulling the strings. Um, I just hope that at some point Elvis's image gets sort of re- re-appropri- reappropriated by a, a still younger generation than that does musical stuff today and that they realize that Elvis was really cool and they kind of bring him back and well, talk right. about I mean, because like just specifically speaking to Elvis, right, like not everybody was capable of appropriating that black sure. culture, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like, but, yeah. but there man is was, an argument. was yeah. super talented and like and I think I don't know that like would it be a better world if it didn't have Elvis in it? Yeah. Right? Like, would it be a better world if it didn't have Paul Simon's Graceland in it? Yeah. You know? Actually, not not even talking about African-Americans, talking about Africans. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would it be a better world if it didn't have Hello Kitty in it? Yeah, maybe. That that one I'll grant <laughs> That one I'll grant you. Well, I mean, here's here's another point. And I think I think the big issue with the appropriation isn't so much the white people who come along and profit off of the thing. It was the idea that the black people were prevented from profiting off of it, right? And that there was some way that they were they were blocked from, which is I think very true. Um, the, the issue with talking about appropriation of Avril Lavigne of Japanese culture for Hello Kitty being sort of sim- compared to Elvis appropriating black culture or like record producers appropriating rock and roll and R and B is that the Japanese people don't need your help. Right, like Japanese, Japan has a very advanced economy, and yes, people hear about their like, you know, the, the stagnation and the lack of growth and the difficulty with the deflationary problems, and yes, they have to give up a certain amount of like economic primacy and influence in the region to China, but like Japan is like a heavy hitter, and you know, if you grow up, you know, Japanese in Japan, you know, I mean, yes, they have their own classes and their own, you know, prejudices and whatnot, but like you're not marginalized just because you're not white. 
right? Like, and this is an idea that people have been in America have not really been com- are still not comfortable with. They're still not people in America are still not comfortable with the idea of somebody who is a member of an ethnic ethnic group that is a minority in America, who at home is not in the minority, and at home is the majority. Right, and they're not necessarily comfortable with even understanding how to talk about it. I mean, like, just I mean, the big example that I've encountered in my own life uh, was when I was working at admissions, and there's no differentiation in the way that people talk about, you know, the African American experience, you know, uh, ethnically versus people who grow up like in the upper castes of actual Africa. Right, like it's it's like it's total. I mean, it's not it's night and day, but they get classified the same way, both casually and formally. And I'm not necessarily talking about policies. I'm talking about like when you meet these people, the assumptions that you make about them are that they had like a Black American experience, whereas they grew up, you know, like in a ranch in Ghana. Yeah, you those know, like, those you know, uh, those those guys are on like rich hits of Instagram and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to diminish them, and I'm sure that they face their challenges and everything, but, but like, I mean, this is, the, this is like the lesson of Tokyo Drift, right? Which is that Tokyo is doing fine and doesn't need your pagodas in order to make it look cool, right? Like, it's, it's that, you know, and in that sense, it's like Avril Lavigne isn't powerful enough to marginalize Japan. Um, Japan, I mean, like, Avril Lavigne, like, it, would, it took millions of Avril Lavigne's grandparents to marginalize Japan, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and many of them didn't come back. And we all know Avril Lavigne's coming back. So, you know, like, she, it's not like those, those guys raising that flag on Iwo Jima, you know, like, they're not doing it against nobody, right? Like, and I don't mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like and, – and I mean even, even at the time in World War II and the portrayals of Japanese people in pop culture as like sort of like you know tiny, sniveling, demonical, like little trolls, right? Like it, it was, was fundamentally misunderstanding the, the power and the cultural strength of, the, of this group of people in this country. Right, and it's just um, I, I just it's like don't cry for Japan. I mean, you guys, we we were talking about it before the show. The Japanese embassy released a statement about the Hello Kitty song. <laughs> they did the one the in, in Washington support. DC in support. Uh, in support. The, the, the Japanese embassy in Washington DC. And, yeah, and they were they were like, yeah, come to Japan. It's pretty yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Great. And and let me just. This is a good. Uh, maybe the the best opportunity. Uh, I'm going to have to jump in with my personal take on this as an actual Asian person, as a person of color, um, as someone who, as I mentioned before, both is a participant in Asian culture and an observer of it, right? I sort of hop in in, in, from the inside view and the outside view of it. Um, Which, like, Japan is awesome because it's it's freaking different. It is really weird. And, you know, as as an outsider, you know, like, you want to go there. You want to... Um, see something that is that is alienating, that is different. I mean, Hello Kitty is a really freaking big deal, and not just in Japan, but in all all across Asia. Um, like those differences cannot be written off and cannot be discounted, and that innate allure is a real thing, right? Um, the, the, the problematic part of it becomes where. Um, uh, where you know this this is where stereotyping comes in right where you you look at a group and you treat them as a group as a stereotype as something other than an actual collection of individuals as an actual collection of human beings who are deserving of individual respect right and um that's not to say that um you know uh, producing a video like this with the especially with the robotic uh, japanese backup dancers is uh, guilty of that sort of stereotyping, I think a lot of people are accusing it 
of that, right? But uh, you know, a, a, us as astute observers of pop culture, um, you know, have some obligation to point that out when that risk is going to happen, right? But um, it, it, it might be a bit much to go out and categorically uh, assign blame uh, in this instance for that sort of behavior. Okay, so that's a, that's an interesting thing, and that's a, that's something that I'm I'm sympathetic to being in in these things, kind of a materialist, right? Like if you prevent people from economically benefiting from the fruits of their creation, while you economically benefit from the fruits of their creation, yes, bad, you know, party foul, right? Okay, that's not happening here. Uh, Japanese culture is doing okay with or without Avril Lavigne, and it's not clear to me that Avril Lavigne is doing okay at all. Um, so, so let's leave that, let's leave that aside, but treating, treating another culture as though it's a prop for your, as though it's a prop for, for your vision or for your genius, or as, as though it is a, like a, a magnificent setting in which the jewel of your individuality can shine all the brighter. Um, yeah, there are some identity political problems there, right? Did you, did you guys know the other big offending Asian people music story of this week can we talk about it really sure, of course oh uh, because because the other thing that you were saying that's really bad justin bieber right. did that yeah because yeah. <laughs> justin bieber was going was in tokyo and he saw a cool shrine oh and he's God. like hey driver pull on over i want to go to the shrine and he goes to the shrine and he gets a picture taken of him puts it on his instagram of him like praying before the shrine and, and puts like hashtag blessed right <laughs> like on the instagram photo but little known to justin bieber that the shrine was the infamous yasukuni shrine which is to which which uh it pays tribute to a number of japanese war criminals and it honors the yeah. the war dead yeah. of the japanese imperial wars of the 30s and 40s um no go ahead Mark, I'm laughing too hard. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. <laughs> oh, war dead. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like it's yeah. it's 14 class A war criminals who orchestrated mass atrocities in Asia are believed to have their souls enshrined at the Yasukuni Shrine. Hashtag so, blessed. Yeah, both of these are. are there, there's two different. There's there's cluelessness happening in both of these acts, right? Justin Bieber. Um, shouting out to the Yaku, the Yakusuni shrine and Alvaro Levine, uh, incorporating all this Japanese-ness into, into her video. Um, there is, a, there's a, a, a lack of self-awareness, a lack of, uh, of thinking ahead about what the implications of these things are that are, uh, I don't know, part and parcel with youth or with like the, the bubble of, of celebrity going on. It's not to excuse these actions or, or, um, or say that they don't have any, any 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 negative consequences to them but um it's i'm having trouble talking about this in case you can't tell just because lots of feelings lots of lots of asian stuff happening here baby 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 oh baby 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 no Thanks, Pete. I know. I mean, I, we were making, we've been making the case to kind of defend Avril Lavigne, but Justin Bieber was just being a jerk. And it's not just a lack of self awareness; it's just it's a lack of other awareness too. It's like you have a responsibility to understand a little bit about what's going on when you're sure. hanging out with people. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, but, but at the same time, like everybody has a limit to that ability to truly understand 
the other, right? I mean, like, sure, you can go and embed yourself in another country for years upon years upon years, and you will you will get there eventually. But that, or you can just do a semester abroad, and you'll understand them profoundly in ways that no one else ever will. Or that, yeah. And if you can't go to a semester abroad, just you know, skim the Wikipedia article. You'll you'll yeah. you'll figure it out. Exactly. Sense. People, they, people in Asia have such big souls. It's just I just learned that when I was abroad. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's great. That's a joke about a specific friend of mine. Sorry, it's. Uh, <laughs> I hope he's listening. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, but yeah, and I guess I guess that there is there is the question of you know the the diaspora versus the people who are actually there, and if it is offensive to Asian Americans who you know are a minority in the United States, um, even though you know does that matter with regards to whether it's offensive to people who are in Japan or not, or or in China in the case of the Japanese war criminals? Uh, I mean, these things get very complicated. I mean, not every pitbull has to weave through some pretty complicated international cultural politics. Um, but, you know, if you saw him with that baby in front of the Inuit blessing in, uh, on Kodiak Island in Alaska after they sent him up there on that Walmart stunt, um, I think you'll know that, that with a certain soft touch, you can get it done. It's not impossible. It's not impossible to get along with all peoples. You just have to lay a fat beat and know how to dance and wear a nice suit or lady suit. I know that's – I mean that's a great – line to go out on but like i i don't know i i always get i always get uncomfortable and this this could be white privilege talking so so hold that i mean i hold the space open for that for that being the case but i always i always feel uncomfortable um with an identity test for who's allowed to participate in the discourse you know because i think that that gets i think that that always um that claim always needs recourse to a kind of essentialism that aren't we trying to get beyond, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but, but I, I'm also, I would be open to the criticism that, hey, Matt, this is just your white privilege saying that you're worried that you're not going to have access to certain discourses the way that, you know, marginalized people throughout history have not had access uh, to the discourse. And I, you know, and I'm, I would be sympathetic to, I, I mean, I would want to interrogate it a little bit, but I would, I would be sympathetic to that, to that claim as well. Um, I don't know. It's so, I mean, really, it really is kernels all the way down when you, when you dig into some of these, uh, some of these issues, right? Yeah. Although I also admire Matt. Um, I think when, sometimes when you, interface with these highly controversial topics that are, you know, buzzes in the proverbial feed, right? And, you know, <laughs> islands, <laughs> islands in the stream. And, and you, you're thinking, is this good for me to be involved at all in this conversation? <laughs> right? Like, right. Know, it's kind of a question that not of a lot of us really seriously ask ourselves. Not even seriously. I wouldn't even say seriously. I would say, because you can ask it seriously, but I mean meaningfully, like actually. <laughs> Do you really confront the possibility that perhaps this conversation is not a good thing for you to spend your time on. Right. Right. That this conversation may have a toxic presence in your life. And that, yes, the conversation has contours and the conversation has topographies. And so to say certain things within the context of the conversation invites certain kinds of criticism just because of the political dynamics of it and the discursive dynamics of it. But that, but again, like, you know, you are, you know, a being tasked with the task of being. Like, you have to exist within the scope of your own life. And it it is not a given that you have to be involved in every internet conversation, <laughs> right? Like, nor is it necessarily the case that every
everybody needs to necessarily be involved in politics. And I mean, there's a, I've obviously, anyone who wants to recruit you has an interest in getting you excited about what they're talking about. But, you know, there's not, there's like, you know, rational choice. This idea of, is it worth it to me to be involved in this political discussion is, I think, a meaningful discussion. And there's, there's aspects of the other, but there are also aspects of the self. And I think that that's admirable, that that's a quality that you've managed to cultivate, the ability to be like, is this really good for me to be involved in all this? I try. Honestly, I mean, honestly, thank you very much, uh, Pete, for that, because I feel really apprehensive about my determination not to enter into a lot of the the controversies of the day. No, I, I mean, I and and because I, it's my belief that a lot of this, the, a lot of the political discourse is actually like they are buzzes in the proverbial feed, right? Like a lot of the political discourse as it emerges, as it unfolds um, day to day in the twenty four hour news cycle is about as uh as consequential as a buzzfeed listicle you know like right like here's 20 things sarah palin did that you're going to be totally enraged by and right like (laughs) we're we're in the emotional we're in the entertainment business which is to say the emotional transportation business so get ready because we're about to make you angry we're gonna get those endorphins a pumping and you're totally gonna get off on this and gonna just hate f your television for the next five hours right like um that that's uh, i i don't think there's a lot more to it than that like at the uh you know at a much at a kind of a much higher order level yes i i am interested in the question of like uh i don't know the of, of like what the social welfare obligations of the american government should be to its citizens but no one's having that conversation people are are having conversations about 10 ways that the the guy grazing his cattle on nevada federal land is a racist right like <laughs> <laughs> and and i'm sure there are many more than 10 because that guy seems like a piece of work you see and i can't escape it anyway no. um but like uh Kernels all the way down. <laughs> I have, um, I I get really apprehensive about that because I feel like I'm shirking. Uh, my responsibility as like an educated citizen of a democracy to get involved in in um, in affairs. We uh, the last lecture of directed studies in in college, which was the the opt in year long um, four 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 classes for the price of three great books curriculum that that covered the Western tradition in in literature, philosophy, and political science. Um, the last. Uh, Lecture was a um, uh, UN diplomat slash professor who taught one of the sections of this class, and they all they all rotate giving the giving the weekly lecture in their discipline, and then you you know had seminars and and um, his his last thing was like now that you've been through this, you have a responsibility to stand up every so often and ask how stands the republic and you know to whom much is given much is uh, you know from whom too much is to whom much is given much is expected um by the way no one ever like parse the grammar of that bible quote uh if you can um you're like knee deep in in subordinate clauses uh and 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 i feel like i'm i'm shirking shirking my responsibility by saying like this just f's with my serenity and i cannot I can't engage with it. It makes it makes me it makes me too angry, right? Like it works on me too well. This stuff. Um, 
I don't know. So, so this is a long way around the barn to saying thank you, Pete, for, for pointing that out because I think there really is no upside for me or honestly a lot of us getting involved in that, in that conversation. Um, and uh, and I'm insecure about that position, so I appreciate. All right, okay, so, so Matt, you just opened that up. This opened up the opportunity for me to ask you, how stands the Republic of Avril Lavigne's Hello Little Kitty? Hmm. Kawaii. um. I mean, I should also clarify. I do know that Avril Lavigne is Canadian. And thus, the Iwo Jima monument was perhaps not the best example. <laughs> I apologize to everybody who was about to well actually me in the forums with that very comment. <laughs> no, they're they're uh, they're an affable people. The the Canadians, you know. Um, oh, clearly. Well, uh, we've gosh, we've gone uh, we've gone long on this episode, but it has been an interesting conversation. So, thank you for having it, and thank you for listening to it. Um, those were two different you plurals in that uh, in that previous sentence, but I'm sure you know that. Um, if you would like to join, if you singular <laughs> listener would like to join the conversation, uh, you can email the email that no one ever emails or call the phone number that no one ever calls. But the thing to do probably is to, um, is to, uh, to comment on the show notes for this episode on overthinking it. But please don't tell me what's going on with that rancher dude in Nevada, because I, I just don't want to know any more about it than I already can't help knowing. We'll be back with next Maybe we'll make him the subject of next week's show. No, no, we won't do that. Oh, guys, I found out 296 was the last time we were all on it together. Oh, man. And this is 304. So Ages it's been, ago. yeah, it's been, it's been a couple months. So it's been a pleasure uh, podcasting with you. Uh, whoever is on it, the Overthinking It podcast will return next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs> Kitty, kitty, you're so pretty, pretty. Come on, kitty, kitty, stay with me. We're going to play spin the bottle. (laughs) Someone chuck a cupcake at me. It makes so much sense.